When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Daniel Moran. I co-host another podcast, 15-Minute Film Fanatics, but I'm thrilled to be here today for longer than 15 minutes with Nick Davis, author of Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, A Dual Portrait, published in 2021 by Knopf. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's great to be here. So thanks for coming on the show. Now, I am so eager to dive into this incredible, incredible book. But before we do that, can you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, sure. I am a filmmaker. I was born and raised in New York City. And um, uh, I don't know what else to tell you. My grandfather was Herman Mankiewicz, and I heard about him a lot growing up, which is what led me to, uh, to this project, which has resulted in a book about him and his brother, Joe. All right, great. Well, this is a terrific book. I've read it twice, cover to cover, about the life and works of these two brothers you mentioned. Your grandfather, Herman J. Mankiewicz, and your great uncle, Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Now, we'll get into their personalities and their lives and the meaning of all those things in a bit, but I'd like you to start by helping our listeners out by giving them like a little bit of a, a resume highlight reel of each one, you know, who the person was and some of the highlights of his career. So let's start with Herman. Sure. Well, Herman uh, was um, one of the first New York uh, playwrights and writers lured out to Hollywood to become a screenwriter in the late 20s um, and was quickly one of the most successful and highest paid screenwriters out there, although he didn't take the work very seriously. I, I, I'll, I'll try and keep this brief <laughs> because I did the whole book about them. Um, you know, among his, his screenplays were Dinner at Eight and uh, Stuff for the Marx Brothers. Uh, he worked on Wizard of Oz, Pride of the Yankees, uh, but most famously, he co-wrote uh, Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. Uh, which, of course, is the subject of much dispute and even the recent David Fincher movie, Mank, starring uh, Gary Oldman. Um, His younger brother, Joe, who was uh, almost 12 years younger, um, came out to Hollywood in 1929 and uh, produced a number of very successful movies, including Fury and The Philadelphia Story, uh, Woman of the Year, uh, before becoming a writer-director. 
in the mid 40s, um, where he most famously uh, won Oscars for best writing and best direction in back-to-back years, a feat that has never been duplicated uh, for A Letter to Three Wives and All About Eve, uh, which is, I think, his masterwork. Uh, And then went on and directed a number of very successful, great movies in the 50s, like Suddenly Last Summer and and, uh, Barefoot Contessa, although... I don't know why I list that one. I happen not to think it's that great. But anyway, a number of very successful movies. Uh, And then his career kind of hit a a, a snag when he signed on to help out uh, the very troubled production uh, starring Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, Cleopatra. Uh, And that kind of derailed his career a little bit. Um, And he was, um, but he still made a, a few more films ending in 1972 with Sleuth. Uh, with uh, Michael Caine and Laurence Olivier, and Joe liked to joke that he was the only man in history whose entire cast had been nominated for Academy Awards because both those guys were for that movie, and and that was that was the final movie that he did in his career. So those are the brothers. Talk a bit about their father, Franz, because he he's, he figures very heavily into the first say third of the book. Well, so, I mean, what I didn't uh, talk about in any of the, that sort of precis was who those guys really were and, and what their personalities were all about, which is um, really formed in large part by, in, in reaction to their very domineering uh, disciplinarian of a father, Franz Mankiewicz, who was a German-born uh, immigrant to this country at the age of 17 um, and was very stern and, and dictatorial and, and, you know, very, I mean, to say he's stinting on the praise, it suggests that he ever praised them, which he didn't. Um, it doesn't mean he didn't love them in his own way, but um, he was just, you know, he was a, a, a brilliant linguist and, and uh, did some reporting and then became a teacher and professor of, of languages. Um, and nothing that you did was ever good enough for Franz Mankiewicz. Um, the, the most famous, uh, you know, oft-told story in the family was if you brought home a 97 on a test, it was what happened to the other three points. And there wasn't anything ironic or kind of funny about it. It was really what happened to the other three points. Like anything less than perfection was just not acceptable. And even if you did manage to bring home 100, you wouldn't get a, hey, great for you, good job. It was just like, all right, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, So both of the the brothers lived their lives in reaction to that. Herman, as the firstborn of Franz, was the target of, of Franz's massive disapproval. Although when you look at Herman Mankiewicz's life, it, it, you know, he was, uh, he, he passed the, uh, you know, he got, he was accepted into Columbia at the age of 13. He wasn't permitted to go until he was 15, but, um, you know, he was a brilliant student and, and then did very well at Columbia and then had a, you know, a good career in New York as a journalist and was a member of the Algonquin Roundtable and wrote for the New Yorker, wrote for the New York Times, did theater reviews, uh, then went out to Hollywood, was very successful there, but it was never good enough for Franz. And and Herman felt, um, you know, that nothing he did was ever going to be good enough. Uh, and so stick it. Why should I even try? And and he battled with Franz uh, violently. And, and they had these just raging arguments 
Um, and, and, and Herman was alone to face, to face his father's wrath. He got no help from, from his mother. Um, and then, you know, 11 and a half, 12 years later, along comes Joe. And for the first time, you know, Herman had sort of an ally, although, you know, not as a, as a baby, but when they were grownups, you know, Herman and Joe could sort of uh, bond over, over, uh, over their, you know, difficult father. Um, so, so that was, you know, that was, that was Herman and, and, and Herman developed a personality that was, you know, large and magnanimous and gregarious and sloppy and self-destructive and enormously funny and warm and, and, and brilliant, um, in, 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 and, and messy, you know, in, in large part, I think in reaction to, to Franz, um, and realizing, okay, nothing I do is ever going to be good enough. So at least I'm going to enjoy myself and I'm going to put my genius into my life and live a great life and be the life of every party, which he was. Um, and, uh, and Joe, on the other hand, was, you know, saw what was happening and sort of thought, okay, I don't know why Herman is behaving this way because he's just bringing grief onto himself and onto pop. Uh, you know, I'll do what I'm supposed to do and I'll, I'll get good grades. I'll put my head down. Um, and he was cold and calculating and ambitious and equally brilliant, perhaps certainly, uh, very successful, ultimately more successful than, than Herman, um, didn't have self-destructive tendencies, didn't gamble, didn't drink, uh, both of which Herman did. Um, and, and sort of, you know, he got out to Hollywood and whereas Herman thought, this is a lark, this is ridiculous. These films, they, they're, they're stupid. It's pap for the masses. This isn't great work. I should be doing something else. I should be writing a play. I should be writing a novel. I should be writing political journalism. Um, Joe thought, no, uh, this is a viable art form. I'm going to study it. I'm going to learn how it's done and I'm going to make a, a career of it. And so he rose steadily, saw early on, okay, the power really lies in the director's chair. That's what I'll do for fun. If I have to walk before I can crawl, I have to crawl before I can run. You know what? I think Louis B. Mayer told him that you got to produce first before you direct. So he did that. And then he wrote and directed and, you know, first didn't do his original stories and then started uh, doing more original stories. And, you know, he was very, very um, smart. I don't want to keep saying cold and calculating because it, it was effective what he did. And so he, he proceeded to, to succeed and he really passed Herman who kind of burned every bridge that, that existed to be burned in Hollywood. Um, one of my favorite Herman stories was Dory Sherry, who was an executive at MGM fired him from MGM and, and fired Herman and said, you know, not only are you fired from MGM, I'm going to make sure you don't work at any studio in town. And uh, Herman said, promises, promises. <laughs> I mean, Herman just didn't think much of what he was doing. And Joe did. Um, and so eventually, you know, Joe sort of overtook him. Um, and it's sort of, I mean, just to, to jump ahead a little bit, it's sort of um, my contention and, and sort of, it was sort of the in, in, one of the inciting ideas behind this project was uh, the, the idea that, that All About Eve, which is Joe's greatest masterpiece, I think, um, 
a film about a younger, cold, calculating, scheming, younger artist who takes down the more charismatic, beloved, self-destructive, you know, artist that, that they, the Eve Harrington, uh, Margot Channing relationship is consciously or not modeled. Uh, I think Joe did, uh, modeled it on, on his relationship with Herman. Um, and, and so that's where all about Eve comes from, I think is, is their relationship. Um, so anyway, so that's the two of them in a, in a kind of long winded nutshell. And their father, it's funny because if I remember correctly in your book, he was a professor at Columbia and his students adored him. He, he, he was much beloved by his students, right? It's classic teacher versus your own kids. Yeah. I mean, his students everywhere. He was, he taught at, uh, he took the, uh, the family to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania for a while. And that's where Herman first had to be in his father's class you know, when he was like 12 years old or something. And, and, you know, what a nightmare. And, and Franz was incredibly mean and picked on Herman in the class. He sort of wanted to make him an example. Um, then Herman got into Columbia and went to Columbia. And not long after, Franz gets a job at Columbia. Um, and, and yeah, so he, but he was beloved by his students, um, you know, all his life. And, and you know, several of them were notable people. I mean, Sheldon Leonard is the one I always remember, um, who was a, you know, great sort of actor. He was in, uh, um, it's a wonderful life. He played the bar bartender there. And, and then he went on to create, I dream of genie among other things. So, uh, he was, and, and, and Jimmy Cagney, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So that's Franz. Okay, so let's let's talk about you, and let's talk about how you set this up. So you know, opening sentences are really important. We think about Colm Ishmael. You know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So I want to talk about your opening sentence, right? And here's what it is. This is from Competing with Idiots. Quote: It's only when you stop knowing everything that you can start to know anything at all. I want to say that one more time. You say, "It's only when you stop knowing everything that you could start to know anything at all." So can you talk about that statement and, and, and why it was is appropriate for the beginning of this story you tell? Sure. Thank you uh, for asking. No one's asked me that. I, I, the, the fact is, so um, this book in part uh, was written because uh, Herman died long before I was born. And Joe, my great uncle Joe, we never saw when I was growing up. And one of the first time I remember we saw him once when I was seven. And the next time I saw him, uh, I was nine and it was at my mother's funeral. And my mother had died suddenly in an, in an accident. And that meant that stories about my grandfather ceased um, because she wasn't there to tell him. And so I'd grown up with this, this image of like, okay, your grandfather wrote the greatest movie of all time, Citizen Kane. He is the funniest man ever. He was so wonderful. And oh yeah, he drank himself into an early grave, but what a great guy. So, and, and Joe, on the other hand, we never see. Now, why don't we see him? I don't know. But he, you should know, young Nicky, you should know, he was responsible for the worst movie ever, the biggest disaster in Hollywood history, Cleopatra. So that's who these two guys are. And, and basically, up until the opening scene in my book, which takes place when I was 23, you know, but from, from zero to 23, and certainly from nine to 23, that's what was frozen in my mind. Herman, great, wonderful, loved, drunk, best movie of all time, Joe, 
is, you know, we don't know. He's a mystery, but worst movie of all time. And maybe that's why we never see him because he's just so ashamed of that one movie. Now, I was a movie fan and I, I did know, well, wait a minute, but didn't he win Oscars for that other one? And, 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 you know, wait a minute, it's just, it, something's more, something is, is more interesting here than these cartoonish images that I had. And, um, and it was only when I stopped knowing everything about these two guys and, and started to admit, wait a minute, I don't know anything about either of them, really. This is, it, it's gotta be more complicated than this. Um, that I started to make progress. And so that's, that was my way into this book. And, and the truth is that that's, you know, I had, I knew the opening scene uh, for years and years and years, but I wrote it in lots of different ways um, because for a long time, I wasn't writing this book. I, I backing up, I, I um, watched the movie all about Eve uh, with my wife um, and when we were, I don't know, probably relatively freshly married and, and, you know, I was telling her about Joe and Herman and she said, well, wait a minute, this is an emotional autobiography on the back, on, on Joe's part. And I thought, God, what a brilliant woman. I'm so glad I married you. <laughs> I'm going to take this idea. So I, I took that idea and I thought, uh, and then the next thing that happened is I, I did a documentary and about New York and, New York movies. And I'm, I happen to love New York. I'm from New York. I grew up there. Uh, and, and it, it, you know, in part, well, I mean, sidebar, Herman famously left New York for Hollywood and got out there and sent back a telegram uh, to his friend Ben Heck that said, will you accept 300 per week uh, to work at Paramount Pictures? The 300 is peanuts. There's millions to be grabbed out here and your only competition is idiots. Don't let this get around. And in addition to ultimately supplying me with the title for my book, it, it made me growing up. I always thought, yeah, Herman went out to Hollywood, destroyed himself working on things he didn't care about. So you, Nick, you're a New Yorker. You're going to live in New York and stay in New York. So anyway, I'm in New York. I do a documentary on New York movies. They write an article about me in the paper and I give an interview where I say essentially what I was saying to you before, like, you know, Herman was, uh, he's the life of every party, but he drank himself into an early grave. He was a bit of a clown, you know, he was a self-loathing clown. And I was very glib about it. And the next day, uh, I got a call from my uncle, Frank, one of Herman's sons, who was very nice, but he said, you know, your grandfather was a little more complicated than that. Um, and I thought, yeah, I guess, I guess he really was. And it, it is all more complicated than I've always thought about it. So armed with that idea and the idea of All About Eve being an, uh, an emotional autobiography, I went to the American Masters documentary series on PBS and I said, hey, would you guys ever do the Mankiewicz Brothers? And the woman who ran it, a wonderful woman named Susan Lacey, said, yes, what an interesting idea. Let's develop that. Here's a teeny tiny bit of money. Why don't you, you know, research it and come back to us? And so I started researching and I started interviewing uh, my cousins, my uncles on audio tape only. They didn't give me enough money for a camera. And, um, and then while I was working on that, ran into a friend at a uh, Christmas party and he said, what are you working on? I said, well, I'm really excited about this. 
he was a book agent, is a book agent. He said, why don't you do a companion book? I said, great idea, companion book, it'll write itself. I obviously can't write it because I don't want to be a writer, right? You can't write and compete with these guys, but this one will write itself. So that was Christmas of 2002. <laughs> so here we are all those years later. Anyway, um, so that's how the book started. And um, I don't know how I got into this, what, what your original question was that, that got me down this. Your this opening sentence. That yeah, you had to well, forget. So, yeah, you you so, knew everything. Yeah. Right. So, so for five years into the process, you know, I missed the first deadline and, and thankfully I had a wonderful and patient editor, uh, Vicki Wilson at Knopf. But um, I realized like it, this project is defeating me. And so I wrote a very different way into the opening story. And the opening story is um, – has to do with with uh, you know something that Joe did or did not do. We can get to it in a minute. Uh, uh, to my mother in 1958, and and so the 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 original type, the original first sentence was not nearly as good. It was the cardboard box was mocking me, <laughs> and it was like all my research and all these tapes and audio tapes that I had that I'd done, and also from the the biographies of Joe and Herman that had been done in the seventies, those authors gave me their tapes, which was just a wonderful thing. Uh, and so I had access to hundreds and hundreds of hours of interviews with people like who, I, who were long since passed, like Orson Welles and John Houseman and, and Burton and Taylor and all these people who talked about Herman and Joe in the seventies. Um, and, but this, this box was mocking me because I was making no progress on the book. Um, so anyway, so that was, that used to be the title. And then one day when I realized like, eh, it's wrong, it, you know, I'm, that's not what this book is about. This book is about the fact that I thought I knew everything and I didn't know anything. So start with that. So anyway. And if all about Eve is about these, you know, the, the rivalry, you know, conscious or unconscious, as you say, between the, between the brothers, it's funny because what you say about Charles Foster Kane popped into my head when you were just talking, because here's what you say about Kane. You say, quote, the man is virtually unknowable, an infinity of complexity and unpredictability, as are we all, at least according to Herman's script. So do you get? Do you think you got to know, you got to get through some of the complexity and unknowability of Herman and Joe as you did this? I hope so. Yeah, I certainly did. I mean, I, I certainly came to what I would say my version of them. I mean, I frankly, I don't think any of us can really know anyone else. I mean, I think we know the version of of you know, even with your intimates, it's like, well, my version of my brother is this guy. And he, I think that's really him, but it's really all in my head. Um, and, and yes, I did come to, under, I think a much fuller, more complete portrait of both of these men than I'd had when I started. Um, and that's great for your reader too, because uh, many of your readers, myself included, before I picked up your book, had no idea who you were, had no idea that you know this book existed. Of course, if someone said to me, "Who are Herman?" Well, Herman wrote the greatest movie ever made, and Joe made the worst movie ever made, and, right. and he also did, I mean, he the, also the did all about Eve. Right. I just have to say about Cleopatra. What's crazy is nobody, even people who didn't like Cleopatra, didn't say it was the worst movie ever. They may have said it was the biggest bomb ever, but I had I had somehow. Whether my mom actually said it or not, I had turned it into it was the worst. So by the time I finally watched the movie, actually, you know, when I watched it when I was like 
12 or something. I was like, well, that's not so bad. And then I watched it again, you know, much later for this. And I was like, there's good things in here. I mean, it's too bad. It nearly sank the studio, but that's not on Joe, you know? Um, Anyway. Yeah. I think that it, it, I mean, I think that getting at the complexity of any human being is, um, well, it's sort of the purpose of, it's why we do these things. It's why we write. It's why we make films and uh, why we write songs. It's trying to, you know, empathize and understand what, what this thing called life is all about. And that's certainly the, you know, the impetus behind the, the plot and also the, you know, the themes of Citizen Kane, right? So let, let's, let's talk about that for a bit. So, so I thought your chapter on Kane is terrific. It's a great combo of biography and literary analysis and reception history and everything you say about that film resonates in the rest of the book. But before we get into that, my question for you is this. How much pressure did you feel? You are you're Herman Mankiewicz's grandson, and now you're going to add to the millions of words that have written about Citizen Kane, even if you weren't related to the, to the author of it or the co-author. There's a lot of pressure to say, "What am I going to say that hasn't been said about said yet about Citizen Kane?" Did you feel any of that pressure as you went to write about it? No, that's funny. I mean, I felt pressure in a variety of ways in a variety of different areas. Um, And certainly for years, my years of not writing this book were probably because of pressure. But I actually felt like, well, this would be fun, like getting to write about Citizen Kane. Like I, 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 I like being allowed to write about these movies. So I, it didn't, you know, it very rarely occurs to me, well, what can I say that hasn't been said before? In part because also, I think by the time I got to this chapter, I knew I'd figured out that this book was my version of events. So I'm like, well, all I have to do is just talk about whatever I want to talk about. And it's funny, the thing you quoted was a very late addition to the book. It was about the last thing I wrote because I actually, in reading the book over, right before like the sort of final edits were due. Um, and in fact, I think it had already been, I don't even think that paragraph is in the galleys, in the bound galleys, because I read it over and I felt like I'm not quite giving this movie its due. I felt like it, it, I was dealing with a lot of like, you know, here's what Herman was doing and here's the battle with Wells and here's all these interesting things. But I felt like I wasn't saying yeah, but what makes it great? You know, what makes this movie great? And I wanted a paragraph or possibly two where I could just just go at like, here's what I love about this movie. And so I, I, I think that was, uh, it's funny you found that because that really was, that was, I think it was the last thing I wrote pretty much. Wow, because you do have that funny footnote in the in the Citizen Kane chapter where you go through all the famous scenes and you and you have a like a like almost like um the box score of Citizen Kane. You say you know it's Wells, Mankiewicz, Mankiewicz, Wells, Wells of who came up with what, right. what, what who wrote innovation. this, who wrote that, and uh, yeah, um, yeah. I also mean I just it's so much a part of me, Citizen Kane. Uh, all about Eve too, to a lesser extent. It's just sort of like I've memorized all about Eve, but I inhale Citizen Kane. Um, and as frankly, as Joe did too, and Joe's side of the family, I think Citizen Kane is just like, it's our text, you know? Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about an idea from Kane. So, so one of the famous scenes is when Mr. Bernstein is talking about the girlies, he's on the ferry, right? Often quoted, everybody knows that a white dress she had on. I won't try to imitate it, but he says she was carrying a white parasol and you know, I never forgot her. A month hasn't gone by since I haven't thought of that girl. And here's your reading on that. Cause, cause of course there's a film 
guy when I'm reading this. Okay, what's he going to say about this? What what is he going to say about this famous? Here's what you say. This is from Competing with Idiots. Quote, who was she? What did she represent? Where did it go? Would Bernstein ever get it back? Loss suffuses the screenplay. To begin with, we've lost Charles Foster Kane, and again and again, the script shows us people aching for things, or people who are no longer there, memories, youth, vitality. We can never quite have what we want. So what did these two brothers want? You could start with Herman if you want, or, or Joe. What did they want? Uh, yeah, that was also, so those two paragraphs, that's the, that's yeah, the it's one. Funny. And it's funny. Um, I think that they, well, they wanted love and they wanted parental acceptance and, and they didn't get it from their father. And so what do you do when that happens? And, and, you know, you can, you can't fill that hole if you yourself, you know, if, if you yourself were not loved or did not feel loved, then then you have this hole and you're going to try and fill it with excitement, uh, gambling or alcohol or in Joe's case, uh, philandering and sex and, you know, success. And, you know, all of these things will pump you up and make you feel whole. Um, but you can't really feel whole if you don't you know, I mean, this is sort of oogie boogie, but if you don't love yourself and it's very hard to love yourself when you don't have that as an example. Um, and it's so, so that's the loss that they, you know, they always assumed the Mankiewicz has always assumed that, you know, loss is coming, you know, uh, you know, I have a, a, a cousin, you know, uh, who, when he was a little boy, uh, his dad said to him, um, well, how was, how was basketball? And he said, the other kids wouldn't throw me the ball. (laughs) And there are families where if you're not getting thrown the ball, you demand the ball or you go closer or you, you know, you, 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 I don't play basketball, but you know, you can get the ball. But if you just sort of assume, well, they're not going to throw me the ball. You know, it's like, that's the assumption. That's the Mankiewiczian assumption that, uh, that, that you're going to lose. You're going to have a lot of fun, maybe losing. You're smarter than the other people on the court. Uh, but they're not going to share their ball with you because they're idiots, you know? Um, so that's, that's what, that's what Herman wanted. And I think, you know, I think he was closer to understanding that that's what he wanted and wasn't getting, um, than I think Joe was, I think Joe for all of his, um, understanding of human psychology, uh, and he loved psychology and, you know, he got Judy Garland into analysis and he, you know, he, he, and his characters are so psychologically nuanced and interesting. I think that he didn't quite understand until very, very late in life, exactly how much had been denied him. And so he, he just thought, well, I'm going to power through and do what I need to do. And, and I don't think he understood on a cellular level that he had been denied love as much as, as Herman did. I think it was easier for him to sort of get through everyday life as a result. Um, but I think that his uh, human relationships with other people were probably not as deep 
or as lasting as Herman's were because he revealed less of himself uh, than, than Herman did. Yeah, and it's funny because at the end of your book, you talk about how after 1972, he he had these dreams to open a theater and because he, he thought that everything I've done isn't really like legitimate. It's almost like you just made me think of, uh, you know, yes, I made All About Eve, but that's getting a 97 on the test. It's it's a, yeah. it's a great it's a great <laughs> right. A, but you know, writing a play in the legitimate theater that maybe would be a ninety nine or a hundred. Yeah, yeah, and I think he felt like Citizen Kane was more than a ninety seven. Yeah. I think Joe <laughs> felt like yeah, you know, Citizen Kane. It's hard to compete with that. So let's talk about, we talked about Citizen Kane. You mentioned it before, but I have to tell you that your book also sent me to Cleopatra. And I had known it as notorious. It's like, it's got this reputation like Heaven's Gate or something like that. And I have to, I have to tell you, I sat there and I had never seen it purely for those reasons. Cause I, I just absorbed the, the legend. Right. And I sat there and I kept, I really kept waiting for the shoe to drop. And I kept saying like, well, this isn't terrible. And that scene was pretty good. And that's kind of interesting. And yes, it's four hours and it's got problems, but it's, it's, it's not even the worst film I've seen this year. So, you know, um, so, which is so funny. And so I want to ask you about that. In your book, you say, I love this bit. You say the story of that movie is quote, like the stories of the Edsel new Coke or Apple's Newton computer. So we all know all about Eve is fabulous and a letter to three wives and suddenly last summer and, and Saluth is great. Let's talk about Cleopatra though a minute and let's kind of clear the air on it. So, so tell our listeners the story of Cleopatra and, and how Joe got involved and what it did to him. Well, so yeah, that's the, the, the you know, it shouldn't matter to, a, a, when you go watch a movie, you know, I always, you know, it, it's like, is it, is it good? Is it not good? If it's not good, it's not good. But but the fact is, it was an in, almost an impossible assignment. They'd already started the movie. They had started shooting in England. They had built all these sets. They had Elizabeth Taylor. They had Stephen Boyd, uh, and and as Anthony and and it was like, uh, or actually now I can't remember whether it was Boyd was Anthony or or, or Caesar. Anyway, it, but the point is they they'd shot all this footage. Ruben Mamoulian, terrific director, um, but why were they shooting in England where the weather was completely uncooperative and they'd blown through already a lot of money, and and it was a disaster. And they called. And Elizabeth Taylor said, the one man who can fix this is Joe Mankiewicz because she worked with him on something last summer. So they called Joe and he was working on what he hoped would be his next great film, an adaptation of the Alexandria Quartet and uh, by Lawrence Durrell. And and he was vacationing in the in the Caribbean and he took the call and he thought, ah, I don't want to do this. I don't want to see Cleopatra, much less make it. Uh, but they frankly, just threw a ton of money at him. And his agent said, look, hold your nose for 16 weeks and it'll all be over. And two and a half years later, uh, and, you know, countless vitamin B12 shots in the, in the butt. And, you know, he had a sciatica and his, his um, hands had psoriasis and he was wearing, you know, cutters, gloves, film editors, white gloves, because he was, his, he was flaking. Uh, he was having to write at night and shoot during the day. Uh, he asked for time. He said, look, I'll do it, but you've got to give me some time to get the script in shape because the script's a mess. Uh, and they didn't give him enough time to get the script right. He said, you know what? To do this right, it's two movies. It's it's uh, Caesar and Cleopatra and Antony and Cleopatra. Let's and do it And he was 100% right. When you watch it, he's 100% right. right. Yeah. Uh, and they said, no, 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 we can't do that. Nobody wants to see Rex Harrison, Elizabeth Taylor. They want to see Burton, you know, get to Burton and Taylor. That's the great romance. 
And, um, you know, everything was going wrong. Elizabeth Taylor was having chili shipped in from Hollywood. You know, the cost overruns were exorbitant. It was ridiculous, but it it wasn't Joe's fault. And um, he did an incredible job under the circumstances. Now, that shouldn't matter when you watch the movie. And you and I, we watch it and we're like, eh, you know, okay, it's not, not there. At the time, because of, of the notoriety of Burton and Taylor, anything less than, I, 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 can't, I, I said something in the, in the book, I can't remember, but, you know, anything less than, than you know, Citizen Kane plus Shakespeare plus, you know, Beethoven was going to be considered a disaster. And, and so it, and the critics were not kind and they blamed Joe, you know, the critics didn't care that, that he'd inherited this mess. They were just like, well, look, this movie isn't as good as it should be. Um, and so he, he was really savaged by the critics. Um, and it kind of, you know, it, it knocked the wind out of his sails. I mean, he'd been basically at the top of the game, one of the handful of top directors in, in Hollywood from about 19, I don't know, 49 till 1963. And after that, he was never really at the top of the game, although he, he did do Sleuth, which was, you know, successful and good. Um, but that was, that was, that was the end. Yeah. And he had, and again, a guy with his resume could say all he wanted to, oh, don't worry. It's just a lark. Cause if I remember correctly, there's a scene in the book where he gets a check for a million dollars. Right. To, to well, come on. So to he, the- he showed my, he showed my cousin who was right. in, I think eight or nine, you know, yeah. uh, he said, Hey, come here. I want to show you something. <laughs> he shows him a check for a million dollars. Uh, yeah, no, he, 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 you know, financially he did very well. Yeah. From so that, it started as film. a lark though, is my point. Like, yeah, I'll come on. Yeah. I'll, go, I'll go in there. I'll, I'll rescue this kind of thing and I'll shepherd right. through how bad can it be. But then it's funny that in your book, you see this guy who's, who's already made uh, these films that anybody would give their, their right arm to make. To say that they didn't care about what the critics say, but they did. He did. It did have an effect on him. It, it, like it, would, is it fair to say like it shot his confidence? Yes. Yes. He never again felt um, – he, he didn't ever really regain his confidence. And, and I think, um, you know, and he also he was getting old and, and he was less and less interested in the kinds of movies that started to get made. Um, and so he, you know, after Sleuth – Although he continued to try and develop and he still tried to make some things, I think in the back of his mind, he sort of felt like, well, you know what, that one was, that's a good one to go out on um, because it was successful and it's good and it's literate and it, it you know, it's, it's worthwhile. But, but he also, towards the end of his life, just felt like, yeah, nothing I did was really that good uh, until he finally had, uh, you know, a, 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 an epiphany where he realized and he did some good stuff, you know, which is which is nice to hear about. Um, he sort of let himself off the hook. So let's stick with Joe for a while. So one remarkable aspect of your book, and there are many, is that you you suddenly appear in the narrative. So I knew I was conscious of you as the author, but then all of a sudden you're actually in the book, and and I think that's a great great trick you pull off. Tricks is not the right word for it, but it's a great great uh, technique, and. You know, part of the story, so is you growing up with this, people might call it baggage or whatever you want to call it, of being a Mankiewicz, right? So your mother is Herman's daughter. And you mentioned this before earlier in our conversation, this scene with Joe 
and his wife, Rosa, and what your mom may or may not have been involved in in 1958, I think this was. So you you, you kind of open with a memory of that, and then it kind of the, you put it away for the reader for a little while. You tell the story of Herm, and you, Joe starts to get more and more established, and then you get back to that story, right? So can you tell our readers that, that story about what happened with, with Joe and his wife, Rosa? Sure. So the story goes. Uh, <laughs> um, so Joe had uh, three wives. A letter to three wives, actually, although he wrote a letter to three wives when he was on wife number two. Uh, his second wife was a woman named Rosa Stradner, who was an actress from uh, Austria, a very temperamental, um, uh, beautiful and, and very talented stage actress and, and successful stage actress in Austria, who in the wake of Greta Garbo, you know, the studios were trying to find the next Garbo. And for a moment, MGM thought it was going to be this woman, Rosa Stradner. She came over uh, to the United States and she made some movies, but it didn't work. She, she wasn't able to emote uh, in English uh, on film the way she had been on the Viennese stage. And so she became kind of uh, a frustrated housefrau. Uh, to Joseph Mankiewicz and, and you know, posed happily for pictures at, at movie premieres and, and things like that. But she was also uh, deeply unhappy and very unstable. And she went a few times to the manager clinic, clinic uh, and, and, you know, took lots of pills. And, and, and you know, today she probably would have been classified as bipolar. Um, she was deeply unhappy and, and erratic and, and disturbed and unstable. And frequently, uh, as a result of her, you know, absences and illnesses, uh, my mother um, would sort of fill in for her. Joe would be having a party, you know, Rosa's away or Rosa doesn't want to come or whatever. And hey, Josie, my mom was Johanna, also named Josie, uh, you know, would you fill in and be the hostess? And one afternoon in the autumn of 1958, um, my uh, mother got a, received some phone messages back in the day. Uh, you know, Uncle Joe is trying to reach you. She finally spoke to him and he said, I'm trying to reach Rosa up at our country estate uh, in Mount Kisco. Can't reach her. Uh, I was going to drive up and, and check on her. You want to come along? And my mom said, sure. So she went up to his apartment on Park Avenue. They drove up to Mount Kisco. They get up to Mount Kisco. And Joe says, uh, you check upstairs. I'll, I'll look down here. And so she went upstairs and went into their bedroom and saw the body of her aunt. And she had killed herself. I had taken pills. And I think that it took a while for my mother to sort of think, Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> what are you doing? If you're really concerned about your wife, drive up uh, on your own or call a caretaker or call a neighbor or, or have me wait in the car. Why are you sending me upstairs? And the, the whole thing felt like such a setup, consciously or not, on, on Joe's part, that it, it contributed to their later estrangement and to the fact that we never saw Joe very much when I was growing up. Um, so that's the story that opens my book is like my first hearing that story. Uh, and I first heard the story in 1988 after I accompanied my dad to an event at the French consulate where the French were honoring Joe. And I was like, 
it sort of threw me because I was like, wait a minute, I thought Joe just did the worst movie of all time, Cleopatra. Why are we honoring him with a thing? And then I met Joe and I thought, this guy's great. Why didn't we meet this man growing up? So I asked my dad that and he told me this story about the suicide and the discovery of the body. And at the time, I was 23 years old and I thought, oh, okay, he was a jerk. I guess that's why we didn't see him. Um, But all these years later, I started to think, wait a minute. What was really going on with Joe to have him behave that way? Did my mother maybe misinterpret the whole thing? What's going on here? So that's the opening scene of my book um, that sort of kicks off the narrative. And, and from that point on, I'm not really a character very much in the book. Uh, I, it's just coming from my perspective, but I don't show up again, really, maybe here or there. Um, yeah. And about that story, of course, the, 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 in that story, that's when you stop knowing everything because you just assume that's when you, you know, I, I know exactly what this family secret's all about. I know the whole, I know the whole story about it and I can write him off. And there's like, and there's that great sense, I think, when you meet Joe in the book that it's almost like you, you know, the, the, the person in the book, you keep waiting for the other shoe to drop. Oh, now I'm going to find out that Joe's this really nasty guy and that's why we never talk to him. And then you're kind of, you're almost like taken aback by how gracious he is. Yeah. I mean, when I met him, I just thought this guy's so warm and, and, and he reminded me of my uncle Frank and he just seemed like a sweet, loving guy. Um, and, and I think to some extent that is who he was at the end of his life. And it's certainly who he wanted to be. He wanted to be seen that way at the end of his life. Um, and, um, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was, yeah, it's just, everything is more complicated and, and, you know, nobody is all one color, I think is, is something that, that actually Joe said at one point. Yeah. Even knowing what Rosebud means won't clarify all the mysteries of Charles Foster Kane. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So here's what you say. Here's what you say towards the end of your book about the Mankiewiczes, you know, growing up with the Mankiewiczes. This is from Competing with Idiots, quote, we'd live separately, die separately, be buried separately, but through it all, if we were lucky... The people we decided to spend our lives with, our friends and husbands and wives and children, we would try to curb our Franz-like tendency to turn everything into a contest, resist the urge to label everyone else an idiot if they disagreed with us, and do what we could, if possible, to let people in behind the armor and the wit. That's strong stuff. How did the other members of the Mankiewicz family react to the book? Crickets. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, they've been great they, they've they've actually they've, they've been wonderful um i think that because we're all trying to curb our franz like tendencies i think that the the that you know to some extent certain people in the family have had more of an issue with the book than than others but they haven't come at me on it that, that there's been such a i think we've all inherited or because we all know it, we're all trying to be so supportive of each other that even though I can kind of tell some of them aren't crazy about certain sections, everyone's been really totally gracious and wonderful about it. And it's, it's kind of lovely to see. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really nice. That's great. So last, last question here. I want to go big picture. So you've talked about your title. You've mentioned it's an emotional autobiography. What, I'm sorry, an emotional biography, which suits the, the subtitle, a portrait, right? Because that's what it is. It's a portrait of these guys. It doesn't purport to be a factual, you know, A to B to C to D, right? And, and, and that's what's so, so great about the book. So I want, to, I want to ask you a bigger, bigger picture about the whole story about, about these two guys. And, you know, as the arcs of their lives move and intersect, we see 
Herman and Joe go from these moments of incredible fame and respect to ones where they're, where they're lonely or the industry passes them by, right? So Herman dies in 1953. He's 55 years old. He's still working. He, he never matched Kane again, which was 1941, right? Joe has that long string of hits. His star dims a bit too. His last film, as you said, is Sleuth in 1972. He dies 21 years later. So here's what I want to ask you about. How is Competing with Idiots, even if you're not into film, how is it a story about, about the vagaries of like fame and talent? Uh, yeah, well, I think it's very much a story about, um, you know, Going back to what I said before, I never really thought of it this way, but it, it is people who are trying to fill a void and they're trying to fill it in some ways with fame and and success, quote unquote, whatever that means. And, you know, there are people out there who are, believe it or not, totally happy without winning Academy Awards, <laughs> without being wildly successful and having million dollar checks they can show to their eight-year-old nephew. You like know, your mother. It, like, isn't there, I'm sorry to interrupt, but there's that great scene in the book where, where doesn't Joe say to your mother, like, don't you want to be a success? And your mother says, I am a success. I have, I'm married and I have kids and it's great. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I think that, that, yeah, my mother, you know, she, she wondered like, why do we not see Joe? Like, and, and Joe, Joe's son said, well, I think he, he kind of feels like you're a disappointment. And she must've been 32 years old at this point or, you know, 34 or whatever. And she was like, what are you, a disappointment? Like, I, I have a good job. I write for Time Magazine. I, I, I'm publishing a novel. I've got these two wonderful boys and a happy marriage to this man. And, you know, I kind of feel like I am a star, you know, and, and that's not good enough for Joe. And it's not good enough for the internalized Franz that we all have or had. Um, and, and so, you know, it's like, that's, you know, that, that has nothing to do with film that has to do with, you know, what, you know, with, with what is life, how is life going to be meaningful to you? Um, so I think I, my hope is that, you know, and there are readers I know who don't care about film who have said, God, I didn't know about film. I, I'd heard of Citizen Kane. I hadn't even heard of most of them. And, uh, but I enjoyed the book because I liked reading about, you know, the struggles that these guys had and, and their, their efforts to overcome what they were saddled with. Um, and to some extent it, it's, and this is not in the book, but I think it's, it's, well, it's not in the book directly, but I think it's, you know, my having, my writing this book and taking as long as I did, you know, is probably because I was having to come to terms with the fact that, well, I didn't make Citizen Kane and I didn't make All About Eve and, you know, I, I'm doing the best that I can. Um, but, but who am I to, to even bother to, to try and write this book? Um, and, and so that, that's why it took me so long. Um, and then, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I did have this alleged insight at one point in the writing of the book where I realized, okay, I know what the problem is. Uh, this book can't just, cause it, for the longest time it was, I, I really found the book boring to read. And it was like a, almost like a, a Wikipedia entry. Cause I was trying to write a very, you know, here's what Joe did. Here's what Herman did. Here's where they intersected. But I wasn't, I wasn't kind of getting into it. And, and then one day I, I realized, oh, this can't just be about Joe and Herman. I need to tell 
Joe's story. I need to tell Herman's story and I need to tell my own story. So I wrote the book finally in 2012. I wrote it and I finished it. And it was a, a triple biography of the three of these guys. And I gave it to my agent. I thought I was done. I gave it to my agent and, uh, and he was like, Hey, you know, terrific. I mean, he, <laughs> that's what agents are for. And he, I gave it to the editor and she said, great, this is what you needed to do in order to write it. Now take yourself out of it. And after a lot of kicking and screaming, I literally one afternoon just removed my entire biography, which was, you know, probably 180 pages out of the whole manuscript from it, read it through and realized, aha, it's not finished. Um, but it, the book now has a voice and it has a perspective. Um, and it's, it's a portrait of the two of them. And you can feel the author, I hope not with a very heavy hand, but you can, you can sort of see the brush strokes because it's coming from the guy who is, you know, uh, related to them and had their stories weighing on his own, uh, for, for all those years. And so, um, that's how I, that's how I created the book. Um, and, uh, and that's why, yeah, even thank you for pointing it out. Like it's, it's not a dual biography. I think, I, I mean, it's factually accurate, but it's a dual portrait. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's, it's my version, you know, my cousins have their versions and, and, and David Fincher had his version of Herman and to some extent he had Joe, you know, like everybody can have their own versions of any story. Um, there's nothing this is not like, uh, you know, a God's eye view of these two men. This is a grandson's or great nephew's uh, eye view of these two men. Which is why the first time you see Citizen Kane as a kid, you don't think to yourself, well, who's right? What's the answer key? Which, which, one, which one of them is right? <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, no one word explains, you know, uh, any, any man. Yeah. So, well, thank you for having more than one word with us. This was a terrific, terrific conversation. It's been great talking to you today. I, I encourage all our listeners to get a copy of your book, Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Menka with a Dual Portrait. It is a terrific book. Like I said, I've read it twice. Thank you so much, Nick, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a fantastic conversation. I really appreciated the chance to work some of this stuff out in conversation. Great. Thanks. Bye, everybody. <laughs>